You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. My guest today is Naim Raza, and he needs little introduction for Radio Ramadan listeners. He was the first voice on Radio Ramadan 21 years ago and has since gone on to host TV broadcasts from around the world. However, life started off very differently for Naim. He was a DJ and became one of the leading Bhangra organisers in Scotland until he turned his life around. He is now one of the leading fundraisers in the country and has recently joined as CEO of the newly established charity called One Family. So Naim, you've been involved in the charity sector for many years and now you've take on the, taken on a new role as the CEO of One Family. Tell us a bit about this new uh, and exciting charity. I mean, charity sector I've been obviously around for nearly a decade now and I've worked through the ranks of fundraising, fundraising on stage, managing projects, managing teams. And uh, just very recently that, you know, there was an opportunity to work with Maher Zain, multi-award winning singer, alhamdulillah, who's got following on like 30 million worldwide. Some of the artists that are, you know, involved in the scene felt they wanted to do a bit more than just come to concerts, sing songs and charities, raise money, and they don't really get to know anything about it and, and, and they're not involved in it. So Maher and the rest of the guys wanted to get a hands-on approach and be actively involved in what was happening. And the uh, concept was One Family. Um, that's the title mm-hmm. I came up with. And they knew the CEO. And what's flattering is that, um, alhamdulillah, when the, the trustees and the artists sat down, the one name that they all agreed was mine. Um, so basically, the, the idea behind One Family is not really that much different from anybody else. But we're hoping that our approach will be a little bit different. There'll be celebrity endorsement. So Maher and other artists and celebrities we, we, we're working with and approaching will take on the projects themselves, they'll go out to the field to have a look at them. We're focusing on areas around survival, which is your you know, routine, things around um, you know, disaster, war, so do with shelter, medical aid, food, water. Then we're looking at strength. Strength around issues like mental health, bullying, domestic violence, and then also around the issue of safety, child trafficking, going on to success. Success is around whether it's a, a child's education, whether it's a, a woman's livelihood, to be able to help people who are in vulnerable situation to go on to better things in life. And finally, sustainability around the green planet and you know, in, in ensuring that we look after the planet properly. So the language you're using is a little bit different. And we wanted to work in the areas where the family has an impact. All the five points that I mentioned, every one of those are units where the family is, is central. And our motto is redefining love globally. So we wanted to come away from the language of aid and you know desperation I want to say you know what as human beings love is the issue because you know it's, it's the family unit no matter where the family is whether it's in Africa whether it's in Senegal whether it's in Syria in Gaza Palestine or Pakistan whatever it might be so inshallah we're moving on to um, some very interesting projects uh, as well as approach and we hope to become frankly to be honest uh, hope to become an online charity more than anything else our fan base is global we are following around 50 million people um, but of course, we'll you know connect with people on the street as well that are not attached to Maher or some of the artists or Awakening for that matter. So Naim, we're going to cast you away to this desert island. Tell us about the first item that you're going to take with you. So I think um, for me, the, the first item is the hadith that's mentioned in every book at the very, very beginning. It's all action is but by intention. And it really is the foundation of what we do when we do it. Many times I've been to an event. It's been a very big event. And in a you know it's in a plush venue. The celebrities are there, and you're hosting the event. And what you know you got to step back and think you know why am I here? So the intention of you know every single night I ask Allah to, before I go on stage, Ya Allah, make sure my intention is correct. I'm doing it because I want to help people. I'm not doing it because I want to host and stand in front of all these people. And think generally, whatever we do in our lives, whether it's you know at my position being on television or on stage, 
anything we do with regards to our friendships, without regards to our family, with regards to work, if the intention isn't correct, then there's a problem. So without a doubt, the intention of going on the desert island, man, is to try and uh, reflect <laughs> and think about life, you know, because that's one of the times when you're on your own. You sit and think about yourself. You know, one of my teachers, Dr. Zahid Pervez, used to say that, always take out 10 minutes in a day and sit in a room on your own. And you'd be surprised about the things you think about. So yeah, for me, that uh, hadith has so much depth that it really is a starting point for everything we do. And obviously, you know, you're very well known now, but I guess in the early days growing up, explain or paint us a picture a bit about what life was like growing up as, as a child. Uh, well, you know, we were born in Huddersfield. Um, we lived in a pretty a pretty poor neighbourhood to the point that we used to have to go to the markets, you know, and, and collect wood that was left over by the, the, the sellers but the sellers of fruit. You know, they used to bring their fruit in wooden crates. We used to bring them home to try and burn the wood. Uh, my father was a bus driver. He worked in the factories when he first arrived. Toilets were outside, right? So there's unheard of. My dad was the first person to actually put a bath in a in a in a in a bathroom. Up until then, the bathrooms are all downstairs in the in the in the in the basement. So you know there were little things. My dad was the first person to buy a car in the street. There were little things that happened. My dad was very good at you know doing. Um, but life was you know quite leisurely. It was pretty relaxed. We had a great time. We were the bad boys of the neighborhood. If anything went wrong. It was always down to us. And then in the area that we lived in, Jack the Ripper dumped one of his victims in the area. And that changed everything for us. Uh, the areas that we used to play and hide and seek and cricket and football, the body was dumped literally in the middle of that particular area in, in Huddersfield uh, near Willow Lane East. So I think from that time, the the air, not only the area changed, but I think our perception of childhood changed. We, weren't, we didn't feel safe anymore. People started to move out. And then obviously my father and many other from Feslabad, you know, that kind of neck of the woods in Pakistan, decided to come to Scotland where the opportunities in business. Um, but childhood-wise, you know, some beautiful memories, still know and meet the people that I knew then. There's different types of communities then, you know, you know, we're talking about people who were in each other's houses, you know, didn't have to knock on our door, make an appointment or give me a WhatsApp or let me know what day you're coming on, watching, some, you know, there's none of that stuff. I even remember to the, you know, I've got a cassette lying somewhere that I recorded off the television to try and record Top of the Pops. There's no recording facility. Life was very different, man. It's very different from So, how old were you when you came to Scotland? Came to Scotland when we were about 14, uh, and I went to Abraham High School. Uh, it was a brand new school. That's where I was close with Greg the Girl. You know, Greg the Girl was filmed. We were one of only two or three Asians in the entire school, and I think we were only one of a handful of Asian families in the area, Pakistani families. So, it was, it was a bit of a novelty for people when we first turned up here. Um, did you face any challenges as be, just being the handful of Asians? Uh, I think my sister faced some challenges with one or two people, but I think generally we didn't have any problems. I think once in a while my dad had the shop built, so behind the school had the odd issue. But I think generally people were quite welcoming. And what was the atmosphere in the house? Was there a lot of focus on education or doing well or on religion and faith? What was the sort of ethos at home? Yeah, my dad made sure that we didn't go to the shop too often. Uh, he wanted us to do well in our studies and sadly I didn't <laughs> my brother did well I mean he, he's the only graduate amongst the three of us my sister didn't do very well either she left school quite early myself I did get to university but then I started to see the nightlife and ended up being a disc jockey and uh, we'll talk a bit about that shortly but then tell us about your next item that you're going to take with you you know this is a a, a beautiful quote by Khalil Gibran and uh, he says that one day you will ask me which is more important, my life or yours. I'll say mine and you'll walk away not knowing that you are my life. And I think this one for me, you know, I'm a bit of a romantic. And love, you know, Rumi and various other people who have spoken about the depth of love. I think it's, it, it, it's, just, it's a phenomenon that only some people can, uh, you know, understand. And this one for me is, is quite profound, you know, that somebody's asking what's more important, my life or yours. And you say, well, mine is, and, and they walk away not knowing that you are their particular life. And I think, obviously, for me, you know, I got my, well, my wife and I knew each other before we got married. And then I actually ended up marrying somebody else. <laughs> and then we met each other a few years down the line and got married, and 25 years later, alhamdulillah, we're here now. So I think I'm a bit of a romantic at heart. And I think it's any sayings around love that have some kind of depth. Um, and this one particularly stood out because it was quite profound. And was that quite a difficult time for you, I guess, in terms of this whole idea of relationships and marriages? Because I guess it was a different time. Yeah, for me, you know, I was going through a bit of a turmoil. 
I met my wife when I was still at school. When I went to university, I kind of ended up in a different world and went off the rails. Um, so relationships were quite tough, trying to maintain them in the in the environment that I was in. I think it took me a few years to realise what uh, uh, what the relationship between my wife and I actually was about, um, to try and hunt her down and uh, make that happen. And you mentioned a bit about how, you talked a bit about publicly how life at the moment, you're very much known in the very Islamic sphere, but in those days, you know, you're a DJ, you're kind of quite active in that whole alternative sort of desi scene as well, weren't you? Tell us a bit about I mean, sadly, what I that was, was like. Uh, sadly, I was one of the first people that set up the daytime gigs. You know, so the, the Pakistanis, Indians and Asian daytime Bangladesh could come out. And and the funniest thing is that later on in the years when I turned tight and came to Islam, I used to stand outside those gigs and try and demonstrate and get them <laughs> shut down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, yeah, I was well known for that as well, which is, you know, quite sad when I look back on it. But equally, you know, my mum said, you know, and obviously there's a hadith around this, that the ones who's the, you know, the worst in Jahali is the best in Dawah. And mum said to me, she said, you know what, whatever you do, you always do it well, whether it's bad or good, you know, and she was right. Because, you know, I got quite well known for the daytime gigs and then equally well known for shutting the things down as well. So I tried to kind of, you know, recompense for what I'd kind of set up in, in the early days. And being a DJ was, you know, is, um, is a lonely, even though, you know, I was in a nightclub, met a lot of people, you know, you're a bit of a celebrity when you're in a nightclub. It was a lonely life because I was on my own. I didn't know many Muslims in that. Even the one or two friends of mine who wanted to come out, they, they used to want to know how to get out of the house to get there, you know. Um, so yeah, it was a lonely life because I was on my Todd. None of my friends or family could relate to what I was doing. I was the only one that could understand it. And I felt I was living a different religion from everybody else. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I think to the point that my dad just gave up on me. And it's only until I went to Pakistan when I was 23 that I started to realise I need to change my life a little bit. So what would you say to those people that are maybe involved in certain things whether it's music scene or you know other sort of things that are perhaps not compatible with islamic sort of values and the thing actually is too late i can't turn it all around it's not going to happen and you almost kind of give up what would you say because clearly in your life things have turned around and i guess mm-hmm. part of the reason you mention about these sort of past experiences is to reflect let, help people reflect that yeah life you know change as young people we all go through stupid things you know that's what being youthful is about unfortunately and I think anybody who's gone through a life where they've not made mistakes I think is missing out to be very frank because I have known friends who have been whose families have controlled them to the point that when they did get the opportunity they just used to go berserk you know because of the freedom and uh, so I think you know it's okay to make mistakes but equally you want to be in a position where you can pull yourself out and that's not to say you should go out and make mistakes we end up you know in scenarios that we didn't plan you know, we end up with friends that we didn't really, we shouldn't have had. We end up being somewhere we shouldn't be. And life is short, man. You know, that, that's one thing that we have to realize. I mean, I've got, I've got friends who are far younger than me that have passed away. You know, whether it's a brain hemorrhage. I mean, at the Sham, we used to work on Radio, Ramadan, on Radio Ramadan itself. And there's many others, younger than myself, fitter than me, who have gone. And I think people need to realize, young people especially, need to understand that, you know what? There has to be a balance. And I think one of the issues that we have as a community, you know, we, we're trying to... We try to Islamify everything, you know, trying to say music is haram. And then, you know, our kids are still listening to music in their headphones, but you, you don't know what's going on. So I think the more you try and control children, the more likelihood they're actually going to do something about it. So I think we need to realize the pressures of the community that we're living in. We need to have a balance. Um, that's not to say we allow our children to do wrong. But at the same time, we can't afford to put so much pressure on them that they feel they need to rebel. Even though my parents weren't very strict when I was young, I just... I didn't have anything to rebel against because I was the first of an era, unfortunately. You know, I was the first one in my friends and family that would rent on to do the things that I did. So I think we just need to be balanced and I think we need to approach, you know, you know, prophetic parenting. We lack that. You know, if we look at how the Prophet ﷺ treated people around him, my children around him, he was very lax. He knew how to get the message across. You know, rather than, you know, picking the chitter up and, you know, the dunda in the old days and stuff. You know, the very unique way of looking at it. So I think we need to just have a bit of mercy on our children. And yeah, you know, kids are going to do bad things. And if we if we cut ties uh, because our children are bad, you know, we're just going to let them carry on. You need to leave, leave the door open. And that's something I've learned is that, you know, my parents left the door open and I got back. And in terms of your parents, especially your father, he's, um, Marshall, he's still full of energy and, uh, you know, he puts off on other people to shame in terms of he does a lot of <laughs> cycling and he's, 
quite out there and active and very involved, mashallah, in terms of have you always seen that in him? He's always been full of energy. Yeah, what what keeps what, him going? Where does he get all this energy from? You know, my dad's always been into health and I don't think I can remember him with a stomach, so to speak. He's always ensured that, you know, since he, he retired early, he might, you know, my dad told me one thing, he said, be, always be content. I mean, he, like anybody else, had a chance to work to lose 70, 80, buy more houses, buy more shops, you know, and uh, at 55, I think maybe even earlier than that, he, he basically he paid his mortgage a few years earlier than that, retired, got into poetry, cycling, walking every single day, eats the healthiest foods that you can possibly think of. And he's constantly asking me, I'm, I just finished the marathon this year um, for the fourth time, alhamdulillah. He said, what's your knees like when you run? I said, they're fine, right? He said, I want you to get so-and-so oil. He's constantly looking out for our health as well, not just his own. And if you meet somebody and there's a problem, he'll phone them up the next day and say, listen, I was doing some research for you, you know, X, Y, and Z. So I think health is important. I think that's something that we, we lack in as a community because of work, because of whatever pressures. You know, and I've started to look after myself over the last few years, particularly since I went to London, 2008, nine onwards. I took a leaf out of my dad's book. I mean, I've been used to cycle 25, 30 miles a day to go to work and back for four years. And then it was a human appeal. There was a lot of travel, so I started to put way back on again. But last two years, particularly last year or so, I was uh, kind of pushed by taking on the marathon. So then tell us about the next item you're going to take with you to the desert island. So, you know, there's an era of films where they're quite powerful, profound, there's got messages in them, and every single line is remembered by generation. And uh, for me, it's Scarface and Tony Montana, and everything he says, you know, say hello to my little friend and all the rest of it, you know. I think the lines from the film, it's just that particular era where characters were created by directors, and the films are iconic to the day that even, you know, 20, 30 years onwards, some of them, those films are you know, seen. It just creates an environment to show the quality of what was around it and also what the era was like at that time. So for those that haven't watched Scarface in a, in a few lines, what's... I what's mean, Scarface is about a Cuban refugee who comes into America making a big in the drugs industry and then, you know, he always said, never get high in your own supply, but ended up being, you know, f- falling foul of that. But I think if anybody's not seen Scarface, they've got to go and watch it. There are films that I think you can play in any generation. They're always going to have some, you know, phenomenal um, messages behind them. So I think all the quotes from the film, uh, without a doubt, and, and people use them in everyday language. Sometimes I call somebody, oh, Tony, and they know exactly who I'm talking about. You know, this we're talking about a film that was about 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, some of the quotes from these films, people still understand exactly what film it was. And there's not many of those films around. So you mentioned that, obviously, then... After school, there was university, and you said you never finished it. Is that something that always stayed with you? I mean, did that was that a bugbear for you, or did, you, did that knock your sort of confidence for a while in terms of you know? Was that a milestone at, for at, you? Or at you? that time, it didn't bother me. You know, I was uh, I just felt I was doing a B in accounts, and I just felt I wasn't going to sit behind a desk in a suit. It wasn't going to be me. And I think the nightlife at that time kind of got the the better of it. I passed my first year, filled my second year. Halfway through the reset of the second year, I thought, you know what, this is it. This isn't going to happen. So I called it a day. And I think, to be honest, I was very fortunate I had my A-levels. So when I came back from Pakistan, a job came up in the civil service in the Inland Revenue. HMRC, as they call it now. Taxman. Taxman. It was in London. And there was a shortage of, I mean, funniest thing is how London is today and how it was then. You know, you're talking about 1989, 1990. There was a shortage of staff in London, believe it or not. And the, the job, subhanAllah, was standing in my dad's shop in Lal Kol, <laughs> looking at daily jank. <laughs> and advert came up for the HMRC, applied for it. Had, they were looking for people with A-levels, hires as we call them now, or we call them hires. And I got the job and I had to move to London. And that was the start of my civil service career. So there was a bit of a blessing in it because, I mean, I got in a management grade, which most graduates, I mean, I met, I met graduates on the journey in the civil service who were just numbskulls. You know, and I, and then I realized that you know what life isn't about a degree. Even though I've made sure that both my kids get through it, because you know there's an expectations that your children should do better than you. So I'm lucky I didn't have a degree. So my my you know betterness for my kids is to make sure they get a degree. Was that always in your mind? I guess with your own kids. Not really. I mean, I think like- I think trying to push them to the education was quite important. Always giving them the you know look. I mean, I I think I've done quite well without a degree. But you know, sadly, not everybody's lucky. 
uh, not everybody has the same chances that I had or the opportunities came to them um, so I think a degree is to some extent what do you call it an insurance policy because any job you go for if you've got a degree you're, you're kind of 50% through the door and the other 50% is your competencies what you're actually good at and I was quite fortunate that I had, I had good competencies a strong character and no one's ever asked about my degree to this day not that I've gone on to show, you know. There was a period when I thought, you know, maybe I should go back and finish a degree off. I think it's too too late in life now. But you were with Inland Revenue for quite a while. You did quite well there, didn't 15, you? 15 year career. I travelled the country. After two years in London, I came back to Cumbernauld. I worked there. And then I spent six years on the road for different departments. Ended up back in Glasgow. It was that kind of, just prior to that kind of time, 20, 20 odd years ago, 20, well, Zen's now 22, 23. So about 22, 23 years ago when one of my uncles died and uh, it was my mum's uh, cousin. And I had to take some people down to the mosque at the central mosque and uh, show that they wanted to see the face because they couldn't come to the funeral the next day. So I took them down and, and you know, that night, I remember it was a crisp November night. I remember the weather. I remember standing there. The moon was out. And they pulled the body out of the fridge. Not that there's anything wrong with him. He had had a heart attack. But the thought of being pulled out of the fridge, that was a turning point for me. I thought, you know what, I've got to sort my life out. Because even at that particular stage, I was still doing stupid things. So Zen was a month, yeah, a month old. That was my turning point. That time in November, I thought, you know, I've got to sort my life out. And that's when I kind of moved on to get involved in Young Muslims. But how, just before that, I mean, how did you turn things? How did you leave that old scene and that company? Because that can't have been easy. I mean, you were kind of leading that whole pack, weren't you? And then how did... So Fortunately for me, uh, I was working in Sterling Tax Office. And one of my cousins, well, a lot of my cousins live out in that area. One of them was very heavily involved in Sterling Mosque. So that particular Ramadan, I started going to the mosque. That was the starting point. And the year after I actually did the Etikaf... So it was already in my system that I needed to sort things out, but that was a turning point. So I think, to be honest, it was about the company. When I was there, the guys in the particular in the mosques they said to me, "You know what? We we, we want to set up a thing, something for young people here, and uh, can can you be our in charge? Because you you're a strong character, you know." And they said, "We've seen this group called Young Muslims in Glasgow. Let's go meet them." So I went to Glasgow, Sadiq Kayu and some of the guys that are still working here, you know, and today. We met them and said, right, we're going to set our own little place. So, so can you speak to the mosque on our behalf? So I went back to Sterling, had a chat with the mosque and they said, yeah, okay. We became so popular to the point that the imam was not happy, right? And uh, we kind of got into a bit of a squabble because the popularity of young Muslims was more than what the imam was doing with young kids. So I ended up leaving the mosque for a little while and kind of going back off the rails. And then that was in the, as the death of my uncle happened. And that was the turning point. So it was flat, kind of ingrained over the, that period. I got to know friends that were in the particular you know within the dean they're trying to practice so and did any of the old friends keep trying to pull you back in and say look what you're you know, doing there was always there's always point. one or two people it was fortunately for me a lot of my friends we all went in the same journey we all went in the same journey at the same time most of my friends weren't intensely involved in what i was doing but they would dabble in it so for them they'd already made the changes and i was a kind of final part of the jigsaw to come in and sort things out so yeah, I was quite fortunate. I didn't have many influences once I'd started. And you know what? Changing your life, when you come into a Muslim organization and you have people around you, it's very difficult to do stupid things. So when I go into Young Muslim, so I was I was put in charge of Sterling. Then I set up a branch in Cumbernauld, got involved in the National Young Muslims. So straight away, you know, I was, I was in a position of responsibility and I had to change my life anyway. So I think being around the right people made a big difference. So now you tell us about your next item that you've chosen. Um, I'm a big football fan, Glasgow Celtic, and uh, this one is to do with Jock Steen, who's now passed away. And this is something I, I, I put in life, not just for football, but business, charity, Radio Ramadan for that matter. He said that football is nothing without fans. And that holds true in whatever you're doing. You might have the best product, you might have the best radio station, you might have the best business, the best charity. But if you can't look after the people that are following you, that are buying your stuff, that are listening to you, then there's a problem. And the fans are the people that matter. So those fans could be clients, they could be listeners, whatever you want to, you know, whichever you look at, they could be donors. So I've always felt that, you know, you need to follow the journey of the listener. So when you, when you know, I remember the years when we were planning Radio Ramadan, we'd sit and think, right, what are they doing at seven o'clock in the morning? What are people doing at nine o'clock in the morning? What are people doing at one o'clock in the morning? You know, one o'clock in the afternoon or 12 o'clock on a Friday night? What kind of programming should we have? 
And same with charities that I've worked with, I've always said, you know, when you're planning the campaign, think about the, the journey of the donor or the volunteer, what are they doing? If it's Ramadan, they want to give their zakat, you should be focusing on that. So same with football, you know, if the fans aren't there, the team is nothing. No matter how great a team you've got, if you don't look after your fans, game's over. You know, if you have an arrogant team, it's goodbye. And I've seen that many a time, you know, a team has lost or won because of the fans. So yeah, football, Jockstein, uh, and fans are really important, you know. And you talked a bit about Ramadan, read Ramadan, and uh, obviously I think you were one of the first voices that the year. I was that actually the first voice. You were the very first. That and I'll tell you what happened. I remember the night <laughs> when we were about to launch. The next morning, there was myself, I think Nawaz Ali, Sadi Kayum, and Ruj Sadiqi, right? And we'd been, we'd given the adverts out to a company outside to make them work. And they'd come up with adverts full of music. And in them days, music was a big issue. You know, you're looking at 20 odd years ago. So we had to work all night. Instead of launching that night, we had to work all night to get the adverts ready. So at six o'clock in the morning, just after Fajr said, you know, we need to go live now. And they're all sitting there looking at, what shall we say? Naeem, you've done this before. You've been on DJ. Come on, you can do it. Was that why you got the... <laughs> so that's why I got it. So I was the first voice on the station. And I remember the fellow saying, Shah Saab and... You know, people like that, subhanAllah, phoning, saying, you know, we can hear you. So first thing we want to know is, can anybody hear us? <laughs> right? So people are phoning and saying, yeah, we can hear you, we can hear you. Uh, it's so emotional, man, subhanAllah, knowing that people could hear you. And I remember that year, there were letters and calls from people crying their eyes out, thinking, you know, we can hear you. This is a, a phenomenal message for us. Said, wow, you know, it was a life-changing moment. Now I think, you know, we, we might take it for granted, but at that time, that was a life-changing moment for Glasgow. That he was the first Muslim. It wasn't. It was the first ethnic radio station. Forget you know, Radio Was wasn't around them times. I mean, Alhamdulillah, they've set up since you know since then and, and carried on the work during the year. But that was the first ethnic station. So it was quite emotional, yeah. Because I think that was the first time I kind of came across you as. Um, probably don't remember me, but it was. Uh, <laughs> I was involved with the young Muslims at the time, and uh, you know, it was, you obviously got the name Papa Name from around <laughs> that year, and uh, you obviously. What struck a lot of people is that you had this natural ability, the gift of the gab. Really, you could engage yeah, with people. Yeah, I think and that was kind of came across from my DJ days. Um, and, you know, generally just had those kind of leadership qualities. And it's not something I trained for. They were just, as I said, I was, I was, I was a leader when I was doing bad. And now it's time to do good. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, I, you know, from those 20 odd years ago, I've still got a relationship with many of them to this day, alhamdulillah, just because of that one, that first broadcast. And what impact do you think the radio station has had on individuals and the community over the years because people you would have got feedback over the years of people yeah I mean Radio Ramadan created a lot of people um, when you look up Baba Salim at the Sham you know they created some phenomenal individuals but without a doubt <clears throat> you know as a station I think it changed a lot of lives not only people who listen to the station during the month um, because a lot of people every year who came to either hear the station or get involved, they would get involved in the activities outside it. So yeah, it's um, even to this day, it's, it's, it's a powerhouse, you know, alhamdulillah, from the point that it does bring people into the fold, uh, helps people to get practicing, get involved. And yeah, I think we've created some legends, you know, Baba Salim, as I mentioned, at Samar Haq, and you know, many other names, alhamdulillah, since passed away, who've left behind legacies. Um, and I think you know the many brothers and sisters that are still involved. I think inshallah will leave behind legacies. And I don't think we'll ever understand the power of the station. You know, you meet people sometimes. Who say, you know, I, I listened to Radio Ramadan twenty years ago, and this is what I did. Wow. Okay. Because that was, I guess, for the listeners. You know, it was obviously a, a time before the internet and everything was really prominent. Now you can click a button and listen <laughs> to anything really. And sometimes yeah. you forget that. And I guess it was giving people a voice. And you know. Recently, somebody was talking a bit about Imran Sabir. Yeah, look, there's him. Imran. His I first mean, phone call to yeah. the station. I remember the first time he called, and I think I was the, it was on Twilight Zone. Shoka, myself, Rehan Sheikh, and many others were sitting there. I remember when Imran called, and people thought, we, we thought it was a hoax. Because just know, for the people that know, don't know Imran, yeah, he, 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 had a, just, he had various disabilities. He was blind, he had a voice disorder. Um, he had a very unique condition and he spoke with a, one of these voice machines, the voice box. So when he called, I think that first night, everybody thought it was a hoax. Well, it's a bit odd. Um, but I said, no, no, hold on a minute. This, this sounds real. And subhanAllah, you know, Imran called every single night, literally. 
And as the years went on, we ended up setting up a study circle at his house to go and see him rather than him coming out because he had mobility issues as well. Um, to the point that you know we named an award after him at the young uh, the Scottish Muslim Awards and you know subhanallah there was a, obviously a charity set up in his name to help young people who were blind who were disabled for that particularly the Muslim community um, so yeah there was you know there, I mean, there was three or four individuals that has since left us that were without a doubt inspiration so take us to your next item then next item is funnily on where we are right now that every soul shall taste death and I think it's something that we underplay the verse in the Quran it has a it's a massive meaning you know that everything we do is going to come to an end one day um, when it's going to come to an end how nobody knows so it's helped me in my life because many times where I've, I've thought to myself I'm about to do something wrong right or in the middle of something that I think you know what I shouldn't really be doing um, mm-hmm. I've had to sit back and think you know what wait a minute this, is, this isn't right and also it's a reminder for people around me sometimes that you know what we're all going to go one day so when somebody causes injustice I mean you know being in my position I've met a lot of people where two people have been unjust to each other and you say you know what well, you know what you're going to have to pay for it somewhere along the way because it's going to come to an end at some particular point so I think just the, the fact and, and you know every you know every soul shall taste death when people hear that it's a quite a negative impact but it's positive as well because if you do good in your life and you know in your heart what you're doing you're looking forward to that moment as well uh, not to say that i am um, but it's something that we should all aspire to knowing that we're going to meet our creator wherever actions we take and again you were t- you know you're talking about young people who are on the wrong path um, it, like i was when i was younger i think you know something you should reflect on that time is short but we don't know how short it is you ever been in a situation where you you've thought you've been close to death um i've had a couple of occasions i nearly got stabbed once at a nightclub so that was a kind of turning point um a knife just whisked past my face i mean it's, it, was a, it was the middle of a fight i think the second time was i had uh, you as a doctor might know but it's palpitations to the point that is it called arrhythmia or something um i, I basically i was out for 10 days that was quite scary and there's been a few moments here and there where, you know, for example, you get stuck in the tube. <laughs> it's quite claustrophobic and you don't know how long the tunnel is and when it's going to move. So we're going to be stuck in here for a while and you think, oh my God, I'm going to run out of oxygen and stuff. So there are times like that I've thought, you know what, I'm going to die in this place. Uh, Hajj itself, you know, we've been in a few situations where the crowds have been just phenomenal um, to the point of fear. You know, not knowing what's going to happen next. So yeah, there have been occasions where you think, you know what, this is it. And you've had quite a unique experience of Hajj. One of the very fortunate people to have gone many, many times and obviously help a lot of Hajjis, you know, go through that experience. Tell us about, you know, where that all started yeah, and how know, many years have you been now? Uh, this year will be, I think, my 20th. Mashallah. Inshallah. And it started in Glasgow. Uh, it was the the turn 21 years ago. So, I mean, I was obviously involved in Radio Ramadan. I was making a change in my life. I was making the change in my life, the kind that when you first come to Islam or start practicing, uh, you want to, every time you see an opportunity, you want to do good. You want to take the opportunity. So, Shields Road, underground. I was just driving up to towards Pollock Shields and there were a couple of anti-Gs walking up with their shopping bags. And I remember it was a Sunday, sunny. Uh, there used to be, a, a, I think, a car boot sale in that area on that particular road they must have bought something they were walking up I don't know why I took the opportunity to give them a lift never met them never met them again don't even know who they are don't even know they're still alive dropped them off and one of the women looked back in the car and she said Beta, may Allah help you to perform Hajj every year I never thought anything of it came back and told my family they're like you know what the hell are you doing what if they called the police you're trying to pick them up and all the rest of it I'm thinking come on man I was trying to do, you know, do a good deed and subhanAllah the year after my mum and I and uh Sajid Shahid Qayyum, Sajid Razak, Mazar Khan, Adil Ibrahim. You know, 17 of us from Glasgow went on a trip of 60 people with forces. And when I was there, Uthman Mukbil, who was the president of forces at that time, who actually, subhanAllah, came on to be my uh, CEO at Human Appeal. Um, he said, look, why do you come back with us next year as a group leader? And that was it. Um, four or five years down the line, forces kind of died out. Dome tours got set up. Abdurrahman Halbawi and you know we've been going together for 20 years and going each time I mean does it ever lose the, its special sort of feeling when you go or is it 
can you get I guess you you know I don't know some people would say I mean can you ever get desensitized to you know hajj so frequently for me when I go the first view of the Kaaba it's like a big smile thing you know I'm back um, and we go with a very different intention obviously we go to perform hajj but our job is to look after 300 people I mean I'm not involved in the company I don't have a financial interest but for me it's about serving the hujaj so our journey is very different it's not as spiritual as anybody else. So someone going to Hajj for the first time, I can't experience that anymore. I've, I've done it once and that was it. But what I do is, Alhamdulillah, I've been very fortunate over the last 20 years to make Hajj for 20 different people. You know, I've done a couple for myself and then I've, I've picked up somebody who's passed away every year. By consult, I consult my mom first. So, you know, who's, who's passed away this year that we should do it. And she initially, for the first 10 years, named me relatives, you know, from my dad and my mom's side who, who'd passed away. And then also my, my wife as well, one of her cousins passed away, did Hajj for him. But now, as the years have gone by, I've, I've started to look around friends and people who couldn't have afford Hajj to go. Um, so no, it doesn't lose. I mean, you know, it doesn't lose its um, value, so to speak. Every day of the Hajj is different. There's different challenges, and because the intention is to look after 300 people, so we can Hajj on behalf of 300 people, not just for ourselves. Uh, but equally, there's moments where you know you get a spurt of emotion. And spirituality because you're in the haram on your own or the day of Arafat or you've met somebody, someone said something. So alhamdulillah, it's, you know, it's, every year is unique. Every year and, is very different. And many people are concerned about the rate of change and, you know, it's getting more and more expensive and, you know, it's a lot more difficult to find, you know, smaller hotels and accommodation and further away. I mean, do you think this is just a natural evolution of... The demand, or do you, do you also get concerned with how much things have changed over these 20 years? I think I've asked that question to scholars many times. They said, look, your job is to come and perform Hajj. Don't get distracted by what's happening around it. So there's that way of looking at it. But equally, you know, if you look at the facilities in the previous years, some of them were pretty dire, to say the least. I mean, I've seen the worst of them. Um, and equally, you have to understand, you know, that um, Hajj is for those who have wealth. It's not for everybody. If I don't have the wealth, we don't we, we shouldn't we don't need to go. And for those that have the health, to be honest. So, you know, and sadly it, it not only has, it will become out of reach for some people, without a doubt. Without a doubt it will. And that is sad. But you know, there's umrah is there as well, inshallah to perform. And I think you know you look at you gotta look at things financially and politically as well. For the Saudis, you know, oil is running out. Um they need something to, you know, cover the revenue for the next X number of years. And the only way was to make an investment in the country, not just in Mecca itself, in Medina, but the country itself. So there is a, a financial or political kind of you know intention behind it all. But equally, I think the end result is not only a safer Hajj, because Hajj has been difficult. I mean, I've seen the Jamarat in the days when, you know what, it was a pillar. There was no, uh, and you know, used to go down to Jamarat and there were lines of ambulances on either side waiting for the number of people that were going to die. It was crazy. Um, and some of the hotels, as I mentioned, weren't very nice. So equally, you know, it's Allah's city and it should be a beautiful city. But you know what? On the other side of the coin, a lot of the, the heritage has disappeared. So it's about balancing the books. And I think you'll have counter arguments on, on, on both sides. And to be honest, I don't necessarily like the development um, and that's not because I'm saying all oh, the heritage is gone, etc. I just feel that Hajj should still have some kind of hardship. You know, I think we're going to the, the, that extreme. But at the end of the day, Alhamdulillah, it's an experience. It's, it's something that, you know, every one of us should try and go for and make the best of it. So, Naeem, you've obviously, um, you mentioned that, that part of the charity is involving people like Mahar Zain, who's obviously um, a very big global figure. I mean, how, does it surprise you how big and how, what influence some of these artists have because you've spent a lot of time with these artists and personalities and celebrities mm. in the whole Islamic and Muslim sphere do you think that you know does that has that surprised you in terms of what influence these sort of people can have across the whole world I think until you go into their particular world you know you either go on tour with them you spend a few days with them do you actually realize the extent of uh, influence they have and I mean that on the public platform, obviously, they might say or do something. Um, you know, Mahat, for example, has mentioned things about issues around Syria, for argument's sake. And, and you know, websites have gone a little crazy trying to donate to the particular cause. But equally, traveling with someone like Mahat and some of the other artists, you see the humbleness of them as well. 
you know, Maher's the kind of guy that, I mean, I've been on tour with him three or four times now. He'll say, I want you to play Fajr in my room tomorrow morning so that make sure that I wake up as well. You know, which celebrity with that kind of following would even think for a minute to invite Tom, Dick or Harry to come and play Fajr in his room, let alone come into his room? You know, as much as they have influence on the other side, on the other side of it, when you travel with somebody, you realise what the beauty of that individual really is. And that was also a convincing factor for me to, you know, take the, the one family proposition fairly seriously. That I knew Maha's background, I'd travelled with him and I knew that I'd been good hands. And, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of on a pretty much on the same platform. But yeah, look, influence celebrities, no matter where they are, whether they're footballers or musicians, they, they, every one of them has a phenomenal fo um, influence amongst their, amongst their particular followers. The idea of one family is to try and get celebrities at that level to do something positive beyond their particular speciality. So whether they're singing, whether they're footballers, whatever they might be, yes, they have a fan base. Let's engage the fan base to do something positive, not just fundraising, but actually social action, social change. Collaborate with other organizations and other celebrities to try and do something with regards to the family across the world. And you find with a lot of these Muslim celebrities and sportsmen and personalities, are a lot of them quite very already socially conscious, but they just need an avenue? Or are you like pushing on an open door? Or do you find, you know, sometimes you're knocking your head, you know, knocking your head off a brick wall, trying to get them to think of more than just about the, the next, you know, success and post and following and, you know, celebrity is a very materialistic world, isn't it? It can really, you know, because the sky's the limit, you get a lot of adoration. Do you find that, you know, with, with some of the people that you work with, that they are very conscious and they, they haven't forgot their roots and their beginnings? I think I've been very fortunate to work with a fairly large number of celebrities now, Muslim, non-Muslim, some bigger than others. And what I've found is that once you actually get to know them and they're comfortable to talk to you, you'll find that innately every one of them has something they want to achieve beyond their own particular sport, particular music, particular celebrity status. They all have a vision. It's something that, that they might turn to when they retire. Some of them are actively engaged in that particular uh, you know, particular sphere that they're looking for, but every one of them, have, without a doubt, have realized that there's something there. They all feel they need to do something a little bit more. Yes, they all give charity, they'll do an event for charity, but they themselves want to get their hands dirty and do something. And it's normally an issue of time and priorities. And meeting them, discussing things with them, I've been able to help some of them to actually fulfill you know, some of the particular visions or dreams they had. And even the non-Muslim celebrities I've met, you'd be surprised how many of them innately have that desire to do something, bring social change. And we see that in, in, you know, in, in the media itself, a lot of them set up foundations, etc. But without a doubt, despite the fact from the outside, we look at them as very materialistic, looking for their next single or the next goal or the next team they're going to play for. But when you actually meet them, they're like human beings. They've also got a vision. They've also got a, a feel for what's happening around the world. They've also got political views. They've also got religious views. They've also got, you know, views around charity, etc. So I think once you break individuals down, they're, they're all pretty much fairly similar. Have there been any celebrities or personalities that you've been nervous about meeting? I think I'm always nervous meeting any of them because you just don't know how you're going to get on with them. I mean, at Dembaba, for example, every time I meet him, my, my hair stands on my end because the guy is a, is, a, is a legend, mashallah. You know, he was the first Muslim sports person that I'm aware of in the football world anyway. I mean, other than the likes of Muhammad Ali, who actually openly showed that he was Muslim by bowing down and making sujood every time he scored a goal. Kolo Torre at Celtic, you know, he became a friend through Demba. I see him fairly regularly, you know. Uh, and again, when I meet him, it's, 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 it's a level of excitement because these people are at a level where they can make change very easily by saying something. You know, where some of us might have to work for months or days, you know, to try and bring that same change. So, yeah, it's, it's always nerve-wracking. It's fantastic because the relationship I managed to develop with most of them is as though we, we you know, met yesterday. We just carry on with the discussion that we had. Unfortunately, I've got some of them on WhatsApp and we talk to each other regularly, you know, once in a blue moon. And uh, if I need to pick the phone up, they'll always call me back. So that initial meeting or meetings that we have, I think the sincerity, the love was there from the beginning and uh, it's continued. Do you think some of them are quite lonely? I mean, I'm not a celebrity at that level. I'm around people all the time, but equally I want my own time. I want my own space. I'm on stage every night. I'm on a television set. I get stopped in the street, you know, and I'm 20,000 followers compared to my 26 million. I also want my own space. So I don't think they're lonely individuals at all. They've got families like we have. They've got friends like we have. What maybe is more difficult for them is that they can't go out shopping. 
they can't go out for a, a bite to eat without people. You know, I remember meeting Demba in Istanbul for uh, for a meal one night. There was a table of 20 people who had finished their meal about an hour, you know, as we were starting. And they were sitting there waiting until Demba finished his meal so they could actually, you know, uh, meet him and get some photographs taken. And then he had to go out through the back because there's so many people gathered outside knowing he was in town. Uh, Maha's the same, you know, people wait outside for him at a concert. But I think, no, they're not lonely. I think the people like us, they, they have their own family lives as well. I think the, the challenge for them is trying to maintain that balance of being on stage, being on a pitch or whatever it is, and then being able to go home and live a normal life. You know, Maha, for example, is very domesticated. You know, he's got a degree in aeronautical engineering. He was a lorry driver before he became, a, you know, as he was singing. And he basically does his own DIY at home. Whereas you expect someone at his level to, you know, bring people in. So yeah, they're, they're normal people, man. So Naim, tell us about the next item you're going to take with you. Uh, the next item is a, is, a, is a a twin item, so to speak. One's from my father, one's from my grandfather. And they're both things that, you know, they, they kind of come from the verse in the Quran that with every difficulty there is ease. And uh, whenever there was a moment where, you know, we had to go somewhere. I mean, I remember my, my dad and his brothers and sisters would might have to go somewhere where they didn't want to go. My grandfather always said, which means that the sun will rise, the sun will sink. You know, the time is going to go. So if you have to be somewhere where it's not comfortable for you, don't worry, the end will come and you move on to something else, you know. And uh, I remember there's a really big low point in my career once where I, I, I was pushed out of something that was quite emotional to me. It was, there was a sentimental attachment and I was, I was literally sitting in the top of the world in, in, the, in the position I was at, at this particular uh, post I had. I remember when I left him, my dad said something to me. He said, you know what? He said, one door closes, another hundred open. And I never looked back because that was the turning point of where I got to where I am today. Even though at that time it was the worst thing that could happen. So I think, you know, the particular quotes from my father and my grandfather and the verse in the Quran, just really about difficulty and, and helping people to understand that, you know what? It's going to move on to something better. And you've, uh, I remember you got very well known, I guess, as almost the go-to person when there were people had issues, you know, back in the days, uh, you're like the guy at the Reservoir of Wolf, <laughs> you know, the troubleshooter, the firefighter, you know, any issue going on, call Naim. Um, is that something that you found quite natural in terms of being, being there for people or did you find that quite hard? Because I guess, you know, it's, so, it's very time-consuming, quite emotionally draining um, and often I think people with very challenging problems were coming to you because they couldn't go elsewhere. So Yeah, I think a lot of the times it wasn't that I could solve the problem, but I knew somebody could. So I think, you know, it was a case of passing it on to somebody else who, who, you know, so I think today, Alhamdulillah, I think it's been very, very rare if someone's come to me with an issue or they needed something that I've not been able to pass them on to. You know, I know a man who can and, uh, and, and follow that through. And I like doing that you know, helping other people out. And, and it's just a testimony to the the community that we have people with so many different skill sets that we can actually relate to. And that's what the Ummah is about, you know, about referring to each other for our problems, our solutions, our, you know, our issues, etc. So I've built, obviously, a very good phone book over the years. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, I've been very, very fortunate, even when I, when I got in the charity sector to try and, you know, when we used to look at holding events, I always knew somebody in some city that could take something on. Um, so I think having those relationships are very important. And they, those relationships weren't by any means the intention that, you know what, this guy will come in handy one day. I never ever make a relationship on that basis. It's just that you get on with people. And as time goes on, uh, they might need you, you might need them. And, you know, you can pass each other on to different people. And would you often counsel them that, look, things will get better, these issues and difficulties will pass, just very much as your father and your grandfather used to tell you? I mean, obviously, you know... In them days, a bit like Radio Ramadan, Young Muslims, ISB, me, you, whoever, there was a, there weren't many people to go to. There weren't many organizations to go to. And even our masajids, we were everything to everybody, right? And now, alhamdulillah, you know, people are starting to specialize in counseling. They're specializing in X, Y, and Z. So it's a very different, at that time, it was different. Without a doubt, you'd be end up sitting in between a couple trying to sort their problem out. Next was a couple of brothers who are owing each other money. Um, you know, somebody wants to explain, but now there's so many different specialities around that. Alhamdulillah, it's a lot easier to pass people on. Sometimes it's a phone call, or, and you know, or a, or a WhatsApp message, and, and you've solved the problem within five minutes. 
But in them days, yeah, without a doubt, the early days, it took time to get things going. So eventually, we've talked a bit about the charity sector and you worked for Islamic Relief and then you went on to Human Appeal. Um, tell us a bit about those Islamic Relief days. Were they, they, they were quite a vibrant, <laughs> yeah. buzzing days, weren't they? For those few I mean, years? basically how it all started was that um, when I got into ISB, the Islamic State of Britain, we ended up, uh, I ended up setting our training course. And uh, Farkanda Chaudhry's father, who's passed away since, may Allah bless him, he was approached by the National Health Service to say, look, could you do a training course for us about how to treat the Muslim patient? And he said, look, I'm not very well. And they, con- they said, but I know a guy who can. So they contacted Nawaz Ali. Nawaz said, look, you know, I can design the course, but I don't know how to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me my name. And I knew how to design the course and present, alhamdulillah. So I did that for a while. And while I was doing it, Imran Sharif, one of the brothers who was there, he still works, I think, around the NHS kind of sphere. Very nice brother, mashallah. Uh, he said to me, look, you mind, you got natural skill of presenting. Why do you take this on as a, as a professional company? So myself, Imran, Mazar Khan, Farkhanda Chaudhary, the four of us set up um, meme consultants and started training people on Islam and then other religions. And then he got to the stage and said, look, you know what? One of us needs to come out here full time and do it. So I approached ISB to say, look, can you help me? You know, fund me. I'll make sure the money comes back in because we, we wanted to set up a professional training company. So we started training organizations professionally on Islam who paid us. The National Health Service, the police, the fire brigade, etc. The money would go straight into ISB. Myself, Mazar and the others that were involved would get their salaries. And as the years went on, Habib Malik, you know, used to meet me all the time. Every few weeks he'd come and see me. He said, look, man, you need to come into the sector. You need to come into the sector. You're the man. You're the man. And all because of Habib, I ended up going to see Islamic Relief. Uh, Jahangir and Aflaq I met them and they said we need to come to London and got involved in Islamic Relief I took on the Ramadan campaign 2008 I remember and those two years without a doubt were possibly you know two of the most vibrant years of my life uh, two years Monday to Friday back to London Ramadan campaign I ended up looking after the Haiti earthquake uh, Pakistan floods um, there was an energy crisis in Gaza and then I went on to look after the Islamic Relief 25th anniversary. Left after two years, got into consultancy work, did a bit of work with Al Khair Foundation, uh, with Imam Qasim as he was setting up. And uh, and then I ended up in uh, Muslim Youth Helpline as a head of fundraising and actually went on to become the CEO. And Human Appeal was one of my clients because I was doing a lot of consulting for the international charities. And Uthman, obviously, having known, you know, met in Hajj 15 years earlier, he said, Look, I want you to come on board and uh, got into Human Appeal five years ago. We started out at 3.5 million and finished last year at 35 million. So, sure. <laughs> so a, but yeah, um, it was like I'd found my calling. You know, it took me 40 years of my life to find what I wanted to do in life. And along the same journey, Islam Channel happened. You know, when I left Islamic Relief, I remember the night it was the Scottish Muslim Awards. Osama Said had set them up as, as a backlash with some anti-racism stuff that was going on. And uh, that's where I met Muslim Hands, the charity. They said, look, come on to Islam Channel, uh, present our live appeals. And the rest is history, man. Then, uh, subhanAllah, you know, myself ended up presenting the GPU. And then Raheem Jung and I presented some live appeals the year after. We just got on naturally. There was, there was no egos. There was just a relationship. He was emotional. I was practical. And we just connected. So they took us to Hajj that year. Uh, so we presented the Hajj Life and presented two or three years together. And through some of the fundraising, you, you got to know Junaid Jamshed? Yeah, SubhanAllah. Um, Junaid Jamshed, you know, I remember it was when I was doing consultancy work for myself, it was through Muslim Charity. I don't know how we connected. I'm trying to remember how we actually connected, but they said, look, you know, we're doing this. We've got a, a, a tour coming up with Junaid Jamshed. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, yeah, we'll take it on. And uh, so Junaid and I, subhanAllah, bless him, we spent, we did three or four tours together in the UK. We did two tours in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, we did a couple of field trips in Pakistan. So, you know, we were fairly close. You know, we had numbers, WhatsApp, and he'd phone me and vice versa. So it was a shock when Junaid died. I mean, that was, uh, that. you know what, me, it, was, it took me a few days to understand what, the, you know, what on earth happened here. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, subhanAllah, because he had turned his life around as well from that. Yeah, way. you know, there were so many similarities. Um, very, very similar, although he's obviously on a, on a very, very different level. And we got on well because of that. We understood what had happened in the past and what was happening today. And 
And you know, it was, it was quite, it was quite uh, satisfying knowing that if I was presenting an event and Junaid knew about it, he was very happy. And he knew that, you know, it was going to be all right that night. He'd always ask who's hosting this event. So I mean, he said, that's fine, then I'm happy. So Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So tell us about the next item then. The next item is very something similar to, is, is when I go into the sector. And uh, it was something I picked up from uh, Britain's Got Talent. I used to love watching that program. I still see it when I get some time. And it was a group called Flawless. And uh, Simon Cowell, who, you know, people love him or hate him, but I do love the guy. They said, you know, what's, what's, the, what's, what's the vision here? And the guys from Flawless said, you know, chase the dream, not the competition. And that's something that stuck with me ever since. And people come to you and say, so-and-so charity is doing this, or so-and-so business is doing that, or so-and-so. So listen, man, chase the dream. Not the comp- Think about what you want to do. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. What do you want to do? Chase your dream. Don't, don't let it be impacted by what everybody else is doing. Uh, and I said, whether it's in business, whether in an organization, or whether you're you know, a celebrity, whatever it might be, you know, focus on what your vision is. Sometimes people look at what everybody else is doing and that's how they live their life. You should live your life according to what you want. And what's your dream? I want to go to Jannah. So live it, man. Don't, don't forget what anybody else is doing. I want to do this. I want to, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, that was a, quite a profound statement. I remember, and, and I think it's just caught on in public generally. It's not just, you know, within Britain's Got Talent, but. Uh, and so do you ever sit back and think about, you know, growing up those growing up in those streets in Huddersfield? And where you are now, in terms, do you ever pinch yourself and say, "Yeah, what a you journey, know, all you know? the time, all the time." I always say to my wife, "I said, you know what, something's not right here." Because you know, you know, on paper, you know, you're not got a degree, you've not got, I've this, got a degree. You've not got that. I've had no training. No, I've not trained on project management, public speaking, standing on stage. I've not even trained in fundraising. To be very frank, I've not had a course on any of these things, or hosting a television station. I just, I was, I tell you, my first ever hosting, Subhanallah. It was a, I did street challenge and I remember the first live hosting I ever did was at GPU and they realized there was no presenter for the stage and I was standing there saying, can you do this? <laughs> and there I was in front of 135 countries. So I want to welcome to GPU. It was, you know, um, so I've just been quite fortunate in that particular extent. Um, well, and in terms of this fundraising and hosting, I mean, what do you think is unique about yourself? I've never fundraised for anything that I've not believed in. You know, if I've seen a project, I think, you know what, this isn't isn't going to happen. Uh, I've normally shied away from it. So I think it's a really passionate and making it feel like it's yours. So, you know, I think whatever you do in life for somebody else, make sure it's yours. You feel for it. You know, you feel what the outcome is going to be. And I think also the, the impact on people's lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, having been to the field so many times, to Syria, to Pakistan, to Palestine, to Senegal etc etc you know you see how people's lives change because of the funds that you've raised so i think it's just about bringing it home to yourself and it's not a job you know you should you should feel the spirit of what's actually happening and the spirit is something i've I've always told people you can't live by the spirit don't do it because that comes across on stage and i don't think i've told you this story but um a few years ago i was uh, in jerusalem and i was in one of the hotels rooftop looking at Mustard Lux and the owner came up and he's speaking to me and he goes where are you from and he, and he mentioned your name because you know do you know Naim Raza subhanallah and I said <laughs> yeah and he goes uh, I came to do, used to go come on some fundraising trips I think in Manchester and stuff yeah yeah and he goes uh, wallahi he's one of the best fundraisers in the world <laughs> so I was, I was laughing with my wife because sitting at the top looking at Mustard Luxa. And uh, your name was getting mentioned, oh, subhanallah. So I think, <laughs> you know, may Allah bless you and do with that. Um, um, so when you not working name and traveling, I mean, how do you uh, take, to, uh, what do you do to relax? What's your downtime? How do you chill out and get, you know, because you need to decompress and de-stress, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, look, you know what? I think you asked that question earlier on about uh, are people lonely? You know, at, at this kind of level, at celebrity status kind of thing, you know, we're talking about people like Maher, but, you know, if I just bring it home to myself at the lower level, um, we all need our downtime. So m- my work's very social. I mean, I see people all the time. I'm on the phone every day, 24 hours a day, literally. I love to sit nothing but in a room on my own. I love it. I just want that space. I want them four walls around me and nobody else. Television, if I want to watch it, and that's it. So for me, that, that's a bit of a detox. So, for, you know, I love leaving London, coming back to Glasgow, spending the weekend at home, 
and then equally I love going back to London because I'm rejuvenated. So yeah, there's a bit of that. Um, love playing football, watching football. You know, I'm big into that. Now, more recently, I've started going to the gym quite a lot on a regular basis, maybe daily basis. I love cycling to places when I'm, I've got meetings in London. Um, I've taken up running to some point. That's my fourth marathon. Um, and yeah, family. Family is important, man. Spending time with the family, with my missus, with the kids. The kids are getting older. They've got their own lifestyles now. Um, many people will, will remember Zen in particular. I remember when <laughs> used to, I think I was at uni and used to come and do some talks. And Zen was like knee height running around and... I used to think, who's that annoying little kid, right? He's running it, speaker. But then, Swan, I think, was it important to him for you to take him along to these sort of activities? And I think it wasn't. Because you had a very decision. busy lifestyle. Yeah, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was a case of how can I get out of the house? And the only way was to take the kids with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was by default. Zen started to come, and obviously, as he grew older, I wanted him to become in young Muslims. I wanted him to be in Young Muslims. I wanted him to be part of the, the you know, the, the same kind of crowd that I was in. And alhamdulillah, being fortunate that they, they've both grown up in Young Muslims and they've got that kind of grounding. Um, but I remember once we were going to, we we're going down, it was a wedding, a family wedding. I remember we were on a coach and it was early morning, seven o'clock or something, bright sunny day. And there's some cows sitting around in a field. And Zen looked up at me and said, Daddy, said, are those cows having a meeting? <laughs> he was just, you know, so used to me sitting around in a circle or a table having a meeting. So it was kind of ingrained in him. And now, alhamdulillah, he himself has run certain projects and, and stuff like that. Alhamdulillah, he's grown to be a strapping young man, mashallah. So the name, as we're coming towards the end of the interview, let's come on to your next item. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of items left. Um, so this one, I'm going to sing it for you. Can I sing it for you? Go for it. All right. So this one is, uh, okay. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, put the trigger, now he's dead. Do you remember that? Behemoth Rhapsody and Queen. So this just takes me back to my music days. And, and to be honest, it's about what music was like, you know, in the days when, you know, things were written that were quite profound. They had some kind of meaning. And, you know, artists were not only celebrities, they were icons. You know, the Michael Jacksons, the Freddie Mercury's, you know, the Bonos, people that generations are not going to forget. Um, and I think just the, you know, that that era of music, and it was my kind of time, 80s, 90s, um, it was a year that legends were created. So, yeah, that wasn't a very good rendition. But anyway. <laughs> and name, if you met the 18-year-old named Raza tomorrow, what advice would you give him? Oh my God, what advice would I give him? I had to do it again. You know, because I think I've had everything in life. If I was to say to him that, you know what, don't make the mistakes, I think I wouldn't be here where I am today. So I think I would say do it again. There's some, you know, regrets upon in life, but that's just the nature of the house. I mean, you know, the nature of the, nature of the beast. I remember not buying a particular house and missing out by... But those are things that, you know, I'd maybe make quicker decisions on. Um, but I think life... I would say live it again and, and, and do it exactly the same and, uh, you know, make the best out of it. Because it turns you into what you are Because now. I think, you know, mistakes are what make you. Um, you know, your, your, your experiences are what make you. And if you lost some of those experiences, I think you wouldn't be the same individual. Um, I'd certainly, I don't know, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Would I, would I give any other advice? I think do it again. And I said, play it again, Sam. <laughs> and coming on to your final item name that you take with you. Um, I think, you know, just three legends, in my opinion, who's not only their era, but their, their quotes are, are things that inspire me constantly. Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King. They were from an era where there was a lot of change taking place. There were, you know, struggles. Um, but a lot of what they said made sense. And it was, it was sense to the point of, they were powerful in what they had to say. There was, there was no, nothing held back. And if you look at some of them now, there could be words of terrorism, you know, <laughs> inverted commas. Um, so, yeah, you know, these are, these are three people, Ali, Malcolm, Luther King, all three of them, you know, subhanAllah, I think anything by them would definitely keep me occupied. So, Naeem, as we send you on this desert island, um, what book would you take with you? You know, um, and you mentioned that, you know, I couldn't take the Quran, yeah. 
Well, you get the Quran anyway. Oh, you get a copy and of you can that, take yeah. another book with you. So, there's only one book I've ever read in my life. And I mean, when I say read, I mean from cover to cover, the entire book. And that's Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. I've read it like seven <laughs> times for some reason in my life. And any other book I've read it, I've read some paragraphs. But, you know, Charles, I don't know why. But I think that that's on a nostalgic point of view. But from a, on, a, on a serious point of view, I would take maybe... Imam Bukhari's book of Hadith or something, something along those lines that I feel that when I was there, I could read it and maybe develop myself before I get rescued. <laughs> you know, so I come out a different man. And how do you think you would cope with that solitude on this island being alone? If I've been to a day in London, <laughs> it'll be fine. You know, I remember going on a, one of our holidays to Turkey and we took a, one of those cruises on the Bosphorus Sea. And my missus looked at me and Shabim said, you know what, you just can't cope, can you? I said, this is, this is, I can't deal with this. It was because I couldn't go anywhere, you know. It's difficult, but I mean, alhamdulillah, over the years, uh, especially with the social life that I've got, being busy with work and things, I, I think I've got to the point where I can actually understand my own, my, my own kind of space. And uh, yeah, but I, I think I look forward to that. It's nice to get that kind of break. And you can have a luxury item to take along with you. You know, my phone is my life, sadly. Uh, and I don't mean that from the point of, you know, I'm sitting on WhatsApp and talking to people, but it's just basically his life, his work, his family, his entertainment, his everything. But as one of my friends, when I suggested to him that I would take this, he said, you know what, what if the battery, what's going to happen when the battery runs out? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So Naim, thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing your Desert Island gems with us. May Allah put a lot of barak in everything that you do, give you strength to continue to do a lot of the good work that you do, inshallah. Um, please remember us in your du'as and we wish you all the best Radio Ramadan sound for the soul Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.